Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have life in your son, Jesus. I thank you that this season is a reminder of all that we have in him, that you did not leave us unto ourselves, but that you sent a Savior, Christ the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, that we might know you, that we might know you through the person of Jesus. And Father, in this season, would you open our eyes that we might see him as he truly is, Father, and see all that it means to us. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 John today, which may seem like a strange place to go for Christmas, but there's a reason why we're going to go there and some stuff that I want us to look at a little bit today. And as we do, I'm going to just ask a quick question as we get started. How many of you feel like you are overcoming today? How many of you feel like a conqueror today? How many of you feel victorious today? Uh, That's good. I love it. Uh, How many of you feel a little bit beaten down, a little bit tired, a little bit unsure, a little bit filled with doubt, a little bit uh, facing some struggles, a little bit maybe relieved you skated past finals? I see some of our students out here, uh, but not feeling necessarily like you conquered them all. Uh, we all come from different places today. As we come in here today, I want to encourage you that if you know Christ, you are an overcomer. You are a conqueror. You are victorious. And so let's get into this and see what it is that scriptures have for us today. First John 5, starting in verse 1. Does everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God? And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord in 1 John 5 as we begin to look at this. Uh, it's interesting that uh, th- this idea comes up that we are overcomers. And uh, I think sometimes when I read this, I just, can I be honest, this week I did not feel like I was dominating, like I was victorious in all things, like I was, was riding high and, and, and kind of living in this more than a conquer mindset and attitude at all times. Sometimes I felt defeated. Sometimes I felt deflated. Sometimes I just felt kind of tired. But here's what's interesting. This idea shows up over and over in the New Testament, which means a couple things. One, it means we must need to know this. This must be something God thinks we need to know. And the second is that it must be hard for us to get, or he wouldn't have to keep saying it, right? It's oftentimes like with my kids, Like there's certain things that aren't difficult, but I have to remind them of regularly in order to sort of get it through their head. This seems to be one of those things in the New Testament that God feels that way about his children and has to continually remind us that you are an overcomer. You are a conqueror. You 
are in a place of victory through the person of Christ. Now, it's interesting that when you see this, we're going to go back. I want to start off and uh, we're going to go back and look at John chapter 1. So we're going to go back. John uh, was one of Jesus' friends. He's called the Beloved. He was very close to Jesus, was very, uh, re- very relationally connected, was kind of in the Jesus' inner circle of friends, wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1 John. And so these books are connected, and there's a lot of overlap in these books. But you go back to John 1, and the way John begins his Gospel really is one of those kind of key Christmas passages that we talk about an awful lot at Christmas. And in verse 1, it says this, in the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is kind of this cosmic title for the person of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is this bigger than life thing. He's not just any old person, but he's a person that's signified as one who speaks and displays the revelation of God Almighty. And so it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you get this interesting concept that John is going to go back, we're going back to look at in John 1, where he talks about really the, the idea of Christmas, that there, the, there is a creator God, but in the, and Jesus was, was the one that was there. He was there in the beginning. He was there and helped create it. And he calls him, he says, this one who cre- helped create the world was life, and he was the light of men. Now, it's an interesting idea that in Jesus was life, but also was light. It's not just a personal example, though, is it? You notice the cosmic scale of this? It says that, when, that, that Jesus was there in the beginning. Like before anything that was made, Jesus existed. But before anything was created, Jesus was already. And so Jesus is eternal. Jesus is, is, is a cosmic being. He's someone that's divine. He's someone who, it says that he was with God and he was God. And so there's this kind of cosmic sense that takes place here. Why is that important for us to understand about Jesus? Because he's saying that Jesus isn't just an example of a way to live. He's not just a kind of a, a good example of, and here's a moral dude that you ought to try to be like. Uh, you know how parents, you, you kind of play that with your kids. You're like, hey, why can't you be like that guy? Uh, hopefully you don't actually say that. That'd be an awful thing to say. I had coaches that used to say things like that. I remember there was one guy that was kind of our first big time basketball player. One of our coaches used to say all the time, so-and-so didn't do it like that. He did it like this. And so we just knew, like, that was who we're supposed to emulate. That's who we're supposed to be like. And we have those people in life. That's not what John is saying, although it is very much true. We should be like Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is something more than just a good example. He's something bigger than just someone to emulate our lives after. He's not just a good dude. In fact, he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. See, in Christmas, we have this kind of fusion of this mystery, this mystery of this cosmic being that shows up in flesh, that shows up in the form of a person. And he's saying that Jesus is bigger than just a man. So it's interesting as you think about Christmas, and you, any of you have your manger scene up on the, the mantle or wherever it is you put your manger scene? Any of you ladies like to pull the manger scene out and you've got baby Yoda in there this year instead of baby Jesus? Um, hopefully Jesus is the real one there, but I've seen several of those where that's there's been a little switch action played with baby Yoda and, and baby Yoda's a very important creature, but not as important as Jesus. 
Uh, because in baby Jesus, you also have the cosmic creator of the universe. This mystery of God and man brought together in this little, uh, this little infant. And here's what's interesting is John begins to tell this story and unravel it for us. Uh, he, he says that um, Jesus was the life and he was the light to men. What does it mean that Jesus is our life? That somehow he sustains us, that somehow everything that we have comes through him, that somehow the, the light of the world, that, that which enlightens the world, that which helps us understand the world, everything we need to know about who we are and how we are to function in this world comes through this person of Jesus who was there before anything was created at the beginning of the world and then came into the world as one of us. So the creator enters his creation in order to show us who God is and what life in this universe is supposed to be like. That's the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of Christmas. But here in verse four is where it takes an interesting shift. John 1, 4, it says, I'm sorry, John 1, 5 says, and the light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, what do we understand about light and darkness? They don't get along very well, do they? Light and darkness are in opposition to one another. That if there's darkness, you tend to have light. Light's going to pierce through the darkness, right? And so these are things that are in opposition. So this light of Christ has come into the world, and yet it says that he comes into the world, he comes into the darkness. And the darkness was not able to overcome it. That's where we get good news for us. Do you ever feel, though, like you're in the darkness? Do you ever feel like the world is a dark place? And I think for me, right now, in the history of, of, of my life, right now feels like one of the darker times I can ever remember. Possibly the darkest time I remember. The time when the light of Christ seems to shine, uh, seems, to be, seems to be muted in the world. The, the, the time where the, the, the world seems to be darkened and distanced from the light of Christ more than any time that, that I can remember in my own life. And I think when we think about this darkness, we experience that darkness in a couple different ways. One is kind of a macro level of the world, and then there's kind of a micro level of more personally how we feel or sense or experience that darkness. So let me just walk with you through this. And here's why I want to go here today. Because I feel like there's more conflict, there's more confrontation, there's more difficulty in our world than any time in my lifetime that I can remember. That in my, I'd like to say short years that I've had on this earth, that my friends are reminding me that they're not really that short, that I've been here a long time now. But in the time in which God's allowed me to be on this earth, I feel like the, the, the darkness of the, the world that we live in is just getting amplified to an extreme degree. And so I see Christians wrestling with this and I see people wrestling with how do I make sense of this and what is God doing in the world and how do I understand this, the, the light of Christmas in, 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 uh, in conversation with the darkness of the world around it. And maybe even asking the question, and is the darkness going to quench the light? Like, is, is the darkness going to overcome the light? And so I see us asking these questions. So I wanna encourage you with some truth today for us to stand on. Man, on a large scale, I think it's important for us to think, to realize that this really shouldn't come, for, come as a surprise to us. One, it's always been the case 
that there's darkness in the world. And so this is not new, but I think it is new and we are in a unique time. Uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the, the conversation in kind of the, especially the educational institutions, but especially just in the broader world in which we lived began to shift and they began to see science as the primary arbiter of truth in the world. And so science was the only trustworthy uh, kind of determiner of truth and what the real, and the only real source of knowledge. And because of that, uh, that began to shape the way in which we began to think about things. In fact, materialism, uh, this kind of idea that matter is the primary influencer of, of all life, it became the primary understanding of, of our reality. And so the fundamental reality of life was more about our matter and our physical stuff and the way in which it interacted with the world. And so because of that, really God was sort of set aside and the, the world began to be this place where we were material beings and science was to measure things and, and, and motivate and tell us how it was we were to understand the, the way the world worked. And so because of that, it's interesting that God sort of gets put on the sidelines. Now, here's the interesting thing about science. Science can tell you what is, but science can't tell you what ought to be. Science can measure, science can calculate, science can, can, can determine what is in, in the material realm of our world, but science can't tell you what you ought to become or what ought to be. And so it's interesting when you begin to see this transition. I think that's why we see uh, so much fighting in our world. Uh, you see, science, uh, science can't tell us what morality ought to be. Science can't tell us what is right and what is wrong. Science can just describe what life is like. And so whenever you think about our world right now, I mean, there's so much contentious fighting in our world. And even scared to go online and just look and wonder what the, what the, next, uh, what the next battle is gonna be over. Uh, it's the reason I think why we fight over sexuality and gender and refugees and politics and care for the poor and so many other things in our world is because we are still, uh, because science can't really tell us who we ought to be. It just describes what life is like. And so here's what I realized. We're still highly moral beings. Creatures are still highly moral beings, but we have sidelined any kind of transcendent truth on which to base our decisions of who we ought to be and what we ought to be. And, and we've put those on the sidelines. And so all that compounds the sense of darkness in which we live. And so as we begin to think about kind of what it means for us, I think uh, people are, are still moral creatures and so they want to know what, what is right and what is wrong, but we've jettisoned anything, any kind of divine arbiter of morality. And so when you've set God aside, what are you left with? You're left with self. You're left with yourself to try to determine what is right and what is wrong. And so this has led us kind of in an in a ongoing direction over the last hundred years. So in the 60s, we began to have a transition and began to look at uh, kind of, kind of the, the sexual revolution and we began to cast off kind of sexual, sexual mores and sexual understanding and, and the restraints of marriage. And we began to throw off a lot of the authorities that have been there in the past and said, no, you should enjoy yourself. If all you are is matter, then you should make the most of it and make that matter feel as good as you can. And so we began to run after all kinds of different things. And more recently, we've cast off ideas of gender, sexual identity, but also personal identity and what makes you a human and what makes you who you are. And all of this is moving in a direction of you taking the place of the arbiter of truth for your life. And so this is kind of the path that we've been on. And if, as we move in that direction, uh, really there's, what's left is kind of this relativistic idea of personal freedom. 
that all of us are personally free to do whatever it is we choose without really any consequences. And so um, possibly you might say there's some, some social constraint around that that's built around, well, I don't want you to infringe on my rights and my freedom, so we should probably try to start to steer clear of one another. But other than that, there's not really any other higher ground to stand on. You see where this leaves you kind of firmly planted in midair? That morally, we aren't sure exactly what it, we're, what it is we're to do. Now, on a per, and so that darkness, I think, comes in, it's, it's, a, it's an idea of the world that begins to shape the way in which we interact with the world. Now, on a more personal level, I think some of us feel the consequences of that very real, in, in a very real way. Uh, some of us, our families have fallen apart because someone's chosen to operate in a, in a way that's been harmful to us. And some of us are going to spend the holidays apart from, uh, apart from those that we love. Some of us have had to deal with the consequences of someone who's passed away. And so they're not here with us during the holidays. And we're, we're longing for that, that sense of nostalgia, that sense of what, what Christmas used to be, that sense of belonging, that sense of togetherness. And in all these, uh, some of us have had broken relationships that we aren't sure how to mend. Some of us have really hard family situations. And you see the picture uh, of that on, on TV of what the perfect Christmas looks like. And you go, oh man, you don't know my family. Like my family's hard to get along with. Like I'm, I've got her on a watch. How long do I need to stay in order to save face before I leave? Because my family's hard. And so that darkness can creep in in a very personal, real way as well. So when you think about this darkness, I think all of this compounds kind of our thinking about how it is we would approach this thing. And yet here's what I think we need to remember and what I think Christmas reminds us of. The light has not been overcome by the darkness. The light is the thing that actually breaks through the darkness. The light is the thing that we can hold on to in the midst of the darkness of our world. And in fact, I think that's the significance of the Christmas season. I mean, you think about Christmas, we literally put lights everywhere, don't we? We put lights on trees, we put lights on our houses, we put lights on our businesses, we put lights anywhere we can find a place to string a light. We try to put up a light to remind ourselves that somehow in this season, this one named Christ has broken into the world and he cuts through the darkness and he is the light that, that enlightens everything in our city and everything in our world. That's ultimately what Christmas is about. And he wants us to remember that, I think, in this season. It's interesting the words that you hear during the season. It doesn't matter where, where you go. You go to any business, not a place of, uh, that, that necessarily is saying they want to build themselves around the truth of God's scripture, but you just see these words. It's peace, glad tidings, joy, hope. You just have this kind of, this, this idea of goodness, this idea of human flourishing, this idea of what life ought to be. It's just ever present during the Christmas season. And it's this kind of, kind of annual beckoning and calling to remember the, the world God made for us is good and that it's full of light and life. And I think that's where he wants us to be. Uh, it's interesting when you think of uh, when you think of Christmas and you think of the season in which we're in, um, <clears throat> I think it's important for us to realize that God wants us to shape our, uh, the way we think and the way we approach the world by the person of Jesus and by the truth that Jesus brings. That that ought to shape and inform everything that it is that we do. And so uh, let's go back and look at 1 John. John. 
First John's a, it's a fascinating book, and we're going to get to this in just a minute, but it's important that John wants us to understand that there's something, that there's a historical reality of Jesus coming into the world that you can, that you can see, that he saw, that he touched, that he heard, that he experienced, that he was there to be a witness to. And because of that, he says that, that because of that, I want you to know who Jesus is because I want you to experience joy. And so he said, I'm writing all these things that you might know joy. I'm writing all these things so that you might know life. I'm writing all these things so that you might know without a doubt that you have eternal life. And so John's gonna, inform, that informs everything he writes here and everything he wants us to understand because he wants you to understand that your faith is grounded in something real, but also something that's satisfying, something that, that's going to stir your heart. And so John, John 5, let's, let's look uh, we don't have time to unpack all this today, but I want to just give you a quick kind of overview of what it is he's saying, because I think it helps to ground us in these times that do feel rather dark. And he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens, and I don't want to go total grammatical, take you back to school stuff here, but there's a couple of verb tenses that are really important when you come to, to looking at this passage. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's everyone who is, is continuing to believe, everyone who is trusting Jesus and continuing to trust him. And so that's an ongoing present action, right? So everyone who believes in Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's actually a, a perfect tense. It's something that happened in the past and continues to the future. So if you've been born of God, meaning you were not alive and then you birthed, you've been birthed by God, you're giving something new, then you continue to believe. One comes before the other. What comes first is God breathes life into you. And because he's breathed life into you, you go on believing. And so it's grounded in the person of God and his action uh, for you. And so he breathes life into you. He says, uh, then there's this kind of smattering, and I want you to think about this. Uh, there's three categories we're going to look as you look at the book of 1 John, and we go through it, and we're going to do a quick, just kind of flyby on this, go top gun on you. We're going to do a flyby um, on, on some of the, the things here, but three tests that John gives us all the way through his book are kind of questions. He deals with truth, he, he's going to deal with morality, and he's going to deal with love. Truth, morality, and love. And he does all this. Listen to how those just kind of get all mixed together here at the end of, uh, kind of at, at the end of this book in chapter five. He says, everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know, that's truth, right? That we have, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Obeying his commandments is morality. And then he goes on, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You see how the interplay of those three ideas are there? Let me go back and just break this down really quickly. I want to run through a few other passages just to point out kind of what these are because it, the, these three ideas show up all through his book. And I think it's important for us to understand when Jesus is the light that shows us how life works, he's the one that we get our ultimately our worldview from. He shapes and forms the way in which we are to understand the world in which we live, which helps us make sense of the darkness and make sense of what God is doing even in the midst of the world and so even in the midst of the difficulty, when you think about uh, these three things, uh, the question, these, these are kind of three big questions that, that every human being has to wrestle with. Three big questions. We wrestle with the question of truth. What is truth? Pilate asked Jesus. 
He wanted to know what is it that is, uh, what is it that we're to believe about the world and our existence? Uh, the second is what is morality? Really, what is good? What does it mean for us to be good? That's a question we wrestle with. Uh, philosophers and ethicists have wrestled with this question for centuries and for millennia. Uh, the third is the question of love. Um, that really is the question of what is beautiful? What does it mean to desire something? What does it mean to love something? To, uh, to, and, and, and that's a question that has been wrestled with, with uh, teenage boys driving their car uh, off on a, on a Friday night. It's a question that's been wrestled with with songwriters and uh, with filmmakers. It's a question that philosophers and poets have wrestled with. It's a question that comes back around. And all three of these questions, what is truth? What is morality? What is good? What is love? These are the questions that make up our existence, that drive what we are. And John wants us to understand that the source of knowledge in all three of those, the source of all three of those is Jesus. That ultimately it's found in God and it's rooted in God. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting if you think about these, uh, these passages. Let me just read a few of these to you. Uh, 1 John 1, 5 to 6. We've got them here. And you can just read along on the screen. 1 John 1, 5 to 6 says, This is the message we have heard from him. And proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's that theme again of light and darkness. And it says that Christ has no darkness at all. And so we are called to walk in him. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, these two opposing forces, one light and one darkness, one's not from the Father, but from the world. And you see this kind of, this kind of sifting and sorting that's taking place in 1 John. 1 John 4 goes on and says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak of the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. See this focus on truth and the sifting of, there's the side of truth and the side of error, the side of the Lord and the side of the world. First uh, John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So there's love. You see the, the three things that are there. We have, the, do, not, do not give yourself to the desires of the world. He's talking about your morality. He talks about truth. That you're to you're depend upon the spirit of truth. And he talks about love, that God himself is love. Not that love is God, but God is love. Those two are not the same thing. God himself is the source of love that we get to experience in this world. Now, by the time you get to 1 John 5, uh, John's been kind of pounding away at this for five chapters. You get to the end of this book, he just kind of jumbles them all together. And they're all kind of thrown together. And so you get this deal. It's like, if you have the truth, then you're loving. And if you love, then you really know the truth. And if you do this, then you're gonna obey the commandments. And it just becomes this kind of mosh pit of, of truth, love, and morality that all go together and they're inseparable. And one way to think about that might be kind of like a three-legged stool. 
if you have a three-legged stool, what happens if you take any one of those legs away? You're going to fall down. Like you're going to break your tailbone, right? It's not going to be a pretty thing. And so you need all three aspects of that to be there. And that's, I think, what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is the answer. God himself is the answer to really all of the questions of life. And he's the one that wants us to understand um, really truth, morality, and love. And all three go together. And if you take any one of those away, you get yourself in trouble. Now here's, why do I say all that? Because I know this is a little bit, it's a little bit uh, heavy thinking. You guys are doing some heavy mental lifting right now. And here's why I think this is important. What's happening in our world right now is that we are being sifted. We are being sorted. And then there's this kind of this mushy middle of people that said, uh, yeah, I believe in Christ. I want to tip my hat to Christ. I sort of acknowledge Jesus. If I have to check a box, I'm going to check Christian because I don't know what else to check. That kind of mushy middle, mamby-pamby faith is going away. And so more and more people are, when they get to a chart on a government form, they're just checking the box, none because they don't feel any external pressure to believe in Jesus anymore. And so this kind of middle ground is going away. And what's happening is we're being pushed to one side or the other, to either the side of light or the side of darkness, the side that depends upon truth from God or the side that depends on truth from self, the side that's, that, that, that is spiritually in nature, the side that's, that's more of the world. And so we're being pushed in these two different directions. And I think that's exactly why 1 John was written is because he's trying to help people understand that there is this mushy middle road that we've sort of pretended has been there for a long time is disappearing. And we're being pushed to one side or the other. And we either need to shine like the light or we're going to be overcome by the darkness. Now, if you're a believer, your, your course is already set. You've been told which side you're on. But the question and what John's pushing us in is, and are you living like that is true? Are you living like you have the life and the light of Christ? Are you distinctive? Do you shine in the darkness in a way that says, that one looks like Jesus. That one trusts Jesus. That one loves like Jesus. That one acts like Jesus. That one is, is strong in the truth like Jesus. See, our faith is not just some emotional uplift. It's grounded in a historical event of Jesus coming, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his, his, his being seated at the right hand of the Father and his eventual return to meet us and to call us to himself so that we will reign with him as he, as he, as he walks again here on this earth. See, Jesus wants, I'm sorry, John wants, us to, wants to increase our confidence in Jesus and us to understand really all that it means for us to trust him. First John, can I go back and give you one more out of First John? Let's go back and look at First John 1, how John starts his book that tells us a lot of his purpose. He says, this was that which was from the beginning. Okay, do you remember what we saw in John 1? How did John 1 start? In the beginning. By the way, how does Genesis 1 start? John's wanting you to connect some dots here. He says, in the beginning, Genesis 1, first things out of the Bible, in the beginning, this is how this started. John 1, in the beginning was the word, meaning in the very beginning, in the Genesis time, in the time before there was any time, there, there was Jesus. And he was there. Starts 1 John again that way, saying, this is the same Jesus, the same Jesus was there, Genesis 1. 
Same Jesus I talked about in John 1. Same Jesus I'm talking about now. That which was from the beginning. And then John is gonna testify to what he himself saw. You remember, John walked with Jesus. He was there with Jesus. In fact, when Jesus hung on a cross, John looked at Mary and said, Mary, your son. And looked at John and said, John, said, he said, John, you're, this is your mother. Meaning I need you to take the place of taking care of my mom because I can't do it. I won't be here. I'm about to die. So this is that John who saw firsthand Jesus' life and his miracles and his preaching and his death on a cross and his resurrected body walking around outside the tomb. Here's what he has to say. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and which was made manifest to us meaning he was once with God, but he came down, was manifested among us as as, as God in the flesh, walking among us, living among us. God was skin on, walking around just like he was. He says he was made manifest to us, and I'm testifying to it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, what's the purpose that John's writing all this and talking about all this stuff? He says, I want you to be in a relationship with God of the universe and with his son, Jesus Christ, and also with all those who believe. That we have a fellowship, we have a relationship, we have connection. And we have connection not just with one another, but with God Almighty, the creator of the universe. And I want to invite you into that. And then he says, why? So that your joy might be complete. See, what he understands is that when we walk in darkness, we're not going to experience joy. You know who the most miserable people on earth are? Christians who are hiding from the Lord and walking in the darkness. Because there's a discipline of the Father. There's a seeking of the Father. There's a a, a guilt of the Spirit that says, and you're you're a conviction of the Spirit that, that just saying, man, there's something better for you. Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. He wants us to experience joy. And so what does it mean for us as we think about our own lives and as we think about what it is we want to do? I think John wants to increase our, our ability to appropriate the life-giving blessing of Jesus, death. Jesus, Jesus died in order to give us life, but we have to appropriate, we have to walk into that experience of all that it is, which is why John continually is calling us to do uh, the right things. Here's what's interesting to me is so often for us, Maybe you feel like you go to church a couple, two or three times a month. You're here for an hour, hour and a half a week. But you spend eight, nine, ten hours just getting inundated with other messages from the world. And then we wonder why we feel like we're in the darkness instead of the light. But it's an interesting thing when you think about just the way the world works and how much messages that we give ourselves. And, and I think we're nowhere near as immersed in the Bible and in God's truth and in the person of Jesus and in our, in our prayer life and in our relationship with him as we are in our social media bubbles and in our political pundit echo chambers. And so much we're feeding ourselves all this stuff from out there and that the, the God of the universe, the one who created it, the one who came to rescue, the one who said, I am life and I am light and I wanna show you how to live. I wanna show you what truth is. I wanna show you what goodness is. I wanna show you what love really is. And man, we're barely, we're barely getting a glimpse of who he is. And so my encouragement to you is, and don't you want more? 
in this Christmas season? Don't you want to know the joy that John says, I'm writing this to you so that your joy might be full? I think that's the invitation of Christmas and what we're called to do. It's interesting, Tim Keller said this recently in an interview. He said, I tend to think that a fully formed Christian is somebody who finds Christianity both rationally and intellectually credible, but also emotionally and existentially true and satisfying. That those go together. And our faith is not some kind of wishy-washy thing. It's grounded in a historical event. Christ was born, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was resurrected. And so John comes and says, look, I saw it. I heard him. I touched him. I know what his life was like. And I want to tell you about him so that you can experience the same kind of life. It's something that is credible. It's rational. And yet it's also, um, it's also satisfying. It's also something that ought to bring us joy. This is what makes our celebration at Christmas, I think, so important. I think what the, what the invitation of Christmas calls us to do is to understand and to embrace really who it is that Jesus is and all he came to do for us. Do you know this kind of sifting and sorting thing? It's not new. If you go back to John chapter one. We think about just the way uh, this passage works in John. He talks about the, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus put on human flesh, the, the creator put on the, the flesh of his creation and became and walked around among us. And he really came so that we might know who God is and might know really the source of, the source of life and source of all that we, that we would know. You know, you think about this question of truth. It's interesting that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Um, only Jesus could say, I am the truth. Um, we, could, we could say, I, I know some truth. We could say, let me tell you a couple true things. We can point you in the direction of truth. But Jesus is the only one that could say, I am the truth. You think about morality. Jesus is the only one that could say, all that the Father commanded me, I have done and fulfilled. None of us can, can say that in terms of our grasp of morality and what's right and what's wrong. We're called to be perfect as he is perfect, but none of us, but all of us fall short of the glory of God. Love, when you think about the question of love, only Jesus can say, I and my Father are one and God is love. Only Jesus fulfills all three of those questions or all three of those tests that were posed to us. But look with me at first at John, uh, John 1, 9. It says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. And is that, to me, is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible? That the world, he came into the world, and he made the world, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. This is the sifting that's taken place. See, the, the, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, meaning everyone has a chance. The, the God through Christ has enlightened everyone. He's opened the eyes of those that they may be able to see, and yet many of them have chosen not to receive him. And then you get to verse 12, and yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
to all who receive him, to those who believe in him, he gave the right to be called or the power to become his children. Do you see the, the two categories that are here again? You have light and you have darkness. You have those who receive him and those that he came to and yet did not receive him. Friends, do you know where you are? That as we enter this Christmas season, do you know for sure which side you're on? Do you know him? Do you know the Savior of the world that came uh, as a man, as a vulnerable little baby? See, there's something in in the mystery of Christmas that is unique from every other religious system in the world. See, uh, uh, philosophers and, and theologians all around this globe try to answer the questions, what is truth? What is goodness? What is love? It's the questions we wrestle with universally and have for millennia. And yet Christianity is the only one that provides a coherent worldview that's tied to a person. That's not just theoretical ideas that people have dreamed up among themselves, but a God who came to us and said, I want to show you what is true. I want to show you what is good. I want to show you what is love. And it's tied to the historical reality of a person who also was strong enough to conquer sin and death and to to live eternally. And so there's this unique contribution that Christianity brings that offers us, that Christmas reminds us of. And and so the encouragement to us is, where where does your trust today? Is it in self? Or is it in the light that came into the world? Because that, to me, is the sifting that's going on in our world that some of us decide we want to be self-determining. We want to be the ones who decide what is true, what is good, what is loving. And yet God has spoken, and ultimately what Christianity is, is us saying, I cannot do that for myself, but I'm going to trust one who's outside of me. I'm going to trust one who is more truthful than me, one who is better than me, one who is a stronger lover than I. And I'm going to depend and put my life on him. Now, it's interesting at the end of his life, Jesus was talking about, and he came back to the same phrase, overcome. You know, this, this word overcome is really, a, it's a competitive word. It, it's, uh, when, you, when you talk about it in First John, the victory that, that you have overcome, it's the same word that we get. Any of you wearing Nikes here? It's the same root word of Nike. It's saying that there's this kind of competition, and I've been victorious. I've, I've, I've won the battle. I've won that which is there. And it's interesting that at the end of Jesus' life, he is talking to his disciples. He's about to leave. And so they're fearful and they're worried. And they're, they have a sense that the darkness is beginning to press down on them. And Jesus has this to say. He says, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So Jesus encouraged to them in the darkness was, I've overcome the world. So you can have peace. I've overcome the world. So you can have joy. I've overcome the world. So you can have hope, I've overcome the world. So you can have confidence, I've overcome the world. So you can have faith, I've overcome the world. What is the victory which we have overcome? It's our faith. It's our faith in Jesus, and he's the one that we trust. Last one, Romans 8. Where is your confidence this Christmas season? As we think about where our confidence ought to be. Let me just remind you, this Jesus who came in a manger comes back again as a warrior who there will be no question about who's in charge.
And until then, we wait and we look to him. But we know that that victory is coming, that victory is sure. And he's given us promises like these to hold on to. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that good news? Friends, any of you scared of the dark? You've got something better than nightlight. You've got a forever light. Light that has overcome the darkness. Life that promises that he will keep you. That he will never lose you. And so your faith and your victory, your overcoming, your conquering, it's been finished in him. It's been accomplished. He's done it. So we can rest. We can trust. Let me pray for us. Father, in the midst of a world that sometimes seems dark, that sometimes seems opposed to you and to the things of God, Father, help us to trust that you are at work, that your plan has not been thwarted, that you are not, you are not uncomfortable at all with the future that you have for us. But you, you know exactly what's in store, that you hold it all in your hands, and we can trust you. Father, I pray that this season, God, would you, would you give us a glimpse of truth, of goodness, of love in the person of Jesus, all that he is, given for all that we are. Father, would you help us to, to see him more clearly in this season, to trust him, to trust the beauty of your grace and your mercy and the fact that you came to us to make known to us the way of this world and the way of the world to come. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.